Hello and welcome to Definitions, the podcast where we crack the lid of the coffin on death, dying and all the morbid morsels in between. Before we go any further, halt and take heed. These are your words of warning. I will be discussing topics of a deathly nature that may be upsetting to some, uh, and if you're not in the right headspace to get down and dirty with the maggots today, then that's just fine. I totally get it. Sometimes you'd rather dig into cake and a good romance novel than a freshly dug grave. Now's your time to save yourself. If you're still here, I'll assume you've got your shovels at the ready, though you may find today that you don't actually need them because today I am back in the studio with the wonderful, the brilliant author T.L. Huchu talking all things Library of the Dead. Hello, um, I am back once again with the fantabulous T.L. Huchu talking all things Library of the Dead and Edinburgh Night series. Um, This is part two, so if you haven't listened to part one where we wander around the um, North Merchiston burial ground um, and talk about the book, um, I would highly recommend doing that as otherwise things may not quite be in context this time around. And we were talking about how um, that particular burial ground plays a role in the books, but there are a couple of other Edinburgh-based graveyards that also um, play roles. But before we get into all of that, hi! <laughs> hey, Jasper, it's, it's great to be back for part two of our chat. I do have one gripe before we start. <gasps> The last one, you had us tramping through North Merkistone Cemetery. Yes. And it was a rather chilly day and <laughs> etc. you know. Mm-hmm. And now we're in your lovely home studio, but it's nice and sunny That's outside. Very so you, so you've you got to call this... it that, my box room. <laughs> <laughs> it's a high tech studio with all the latest gizmos. Yes believe that please (laughs) but it's nice and sunny outside it's spring in edinburgh Mm -hmm. which is a great day for tramping around in cemeteries however we do have a reason why we're not out we do we do the the other cemetery that we were going to go to is the old carlton burial ground um which we did manage to get some footage there for a little tiktok so if you follow me over at definitions there you'll get to see some of it um and a particular grave and monument that plays a big role um, in the book series. However, um, it is one of the busiest graveyards in the city um, and there's no way we could record there without you also overhearing half a dozen tour guides um, telling people about various other parts of the graveyard in different languages. So um, as interesting as all of that, (laughs) that would be to listen to. Uh, I'd feel bad if we hadn't paid for the services to um... (laughs) overhear it. But yeah, so we're somewhere where you can just listen to our lovely soothing voices um, without hearing half a dozen other people talking in the background as well. Um, But without further ado, we are once back here to, once again, even back here to talk about um, the Library of the Dead series. Um, and since we've talked about 
you know, the role that North Murchison had. Um, let's talk a little bit about the role that the old Carlton Hill burial ground plays and a particular tomb there that is important to the books. Yeah, so I'll start with a little recap about yes. the book and the series. Yes. Um, <laughs> the Library of the Dead is the first book in the Edinburgh Night series. Mm. Uh, we've got our protagonist, Ropa, who's 14, going on 15, and she's a ghost st- ghost stalker. Mm-hmm. Um, she speaks with ghosts for a living. It's kind of like, um, yeah, low-paid royal male thing. But with the mailman <laughs> strikes and all the strikes we're having in the UK, every job is kind of underpaid unless you're somewhere up there with the Tories and the oligarchs that govern this country. Oh, I'm going off on a rant. I'm no, no, in. that's fine. I mean, you know, I think I'd, I'd rather be one of the lower paid postmen yeah. than <laughs> a Tory oligarch. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And um, in the first book, she um, she's asked by a ghost to find some missing kids and gets robbed and reluctantly into this mystery and along the way she discovers the library of the dead this old mm. called library that's um the titular setting mm-hmm. um and the entrance for it the first and ent- it's got two entrances mm-hmm. one at the top of carlton hill mm-hmm. um which but, has the best views in the city if you're ever if you're ever here <laughs> yeah you get a 360 degree view of the city it's, yeah. it's stunning up there um, and the other one is in the old Carlton burial ground. So I knew I wanted to have the library um, mm. under Carlton Hill. So it's kind of like the subterranean setting that's sculpted out of, you know, under the hill. Um, it's, it's sort of like it's got this orb structure. And when Robert first goes in, she's like, yeah, this, this really mm. looks like it's been chiseled out it's been hollowed out so it's kind of like an easter egg type thing (laughs) but i needed an entrance for the i wanted to have a separate entrance for the punters the readers the magicians that use the library Mm. and one for the librarians that run it um who are fascinating characters as well and all their different sort of codes and everything that they have to abide by but any, anyway we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get on to that we'll get, we'll on to get that. onto that yeah <laughs> and so um i was tramping around these kind of the, the, there is another uh graveyard off the royal mile is it yeah, i think that's that's the um the other end of the royal mile yeah, yeah that's and... so we're talking the east end with the old carlton burial ground and then st cuthbert's <laughs> is all the way down at the the west end that's a beautiful yeah. cemetery as well that is a beautiful one yeah. and and um but when i got to old carlton it was actually my first time going in there and i thought this is stunning uh you you've got that um obelisks that's yeah. what they call it yeah uh, i think that's for the american civil war something to yeah. do with that um it is so atmospheric and it's it's so old and, and cinematic and this is before I'd really gotten into the history of the place. Mm. And so you walk up the stairs, so you almost ascend into the cemetery. Yeah. Um you go through this arc entrance with like a wrought iron gate yes yeah um and and you, the, the thing is you can't see anything going in so yeah. because because of it, it, you're sort of going up this incline and because 
the the cemetery itself it is so high up there's these high walls so unless you know it's there you you can't really see it at all so so there's all these amazing graves and monuments in there and some of them are really old the fact that they're still standing is incredible um so until you have gone up these steps that's the only point where you start to actually see any of the graveyard properly which is a hell of an entrance i think it is <laughs> it, it, it is it, it, it has that vibe and when you reach the highest point you've got you know the old town sprawling just below you you've yeah. got magnificent views and you've got the view of Carlton hill just yeah. behind you as well so it's it's so beautiful but one thing it has is these fantastic mausoleums mm. dotted about the place and one in particular stood out because it was round mm. pretty it's it it for me it resembled like a granary a grand silo at least that was my first it's like um, a big tower you know yeah, yeah. It, it really stands out so, so i go there and there's this statue next to it of abraham lincoln <laughs> and stuff so that american thing is definitely there yeah again you can see that in in the little tiktok that we did as well um if you want to see abe <laughs> yeah so <laughs> i'm standing I, i'm like this is the entrance because it's got this um in a, a wrought iron entrance to it and it's it's got a vibe to it and who's buried there david hume mm -hmm. um so i've described the process of writing the book as a sort of like call and response between me and the city right so mm -hmm. you i'm trying to find these locations and in finding the locations of the city it alters um what I thought was going to happen in the book. So, David Hume, what do I know about David Hume? He's um, a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. Uh, and if you think about Hume, you're definitely thinking about um, empiricism. You are thinking about skepticism. So, that for me results in these massive changes to the magic system that I, I created. I mean, the Society of Magicians in the book is called the Society of Skeptical Inquirers with a nod to Hume and that's your entryway in that. So the Scottish Enlightenment really that's that's when that historic angle of, of using the Scottish Enlightenment as a specific um, point within the text that's where that emerges from. Um, and other cool things start happening right who was Hume's mm. best mate? Um, Adam Smith, the mm. Adam Smith economist, philosopher the wealth of nations and so I end up deciding that this is gonna be like a really commercial magic magical society in there magic is business um, but you start discovering all these fascinating facts just about um, the old Carlton burial ground so the reason uh, they started burying people there was um, some time ago there was a Jewish dentist if, if I recall this correctly um who lived in the city um and this is sort of in the 1700s um but jews couldn't get buried in christian cemeteries mm. all right so he petitioned the city to have a separate cemetery and then being you know that era they were like yeah jews and atheists same thing you can have <laughs> the space same difference <laughs> 
that. And Hume was famously mm. um, mm-hmm. not religious, which was pretty daring for that era, considering yeah. Yeah. what they could do to you. Um, but he was a man of a certain class, you know, and and, and w- with a certain reputation. So that might be some insulation. I think Edinburgh sort of being at the time at the forefront of a lot of science and philosophy and that kind of thing. He probably was in the right place to get away with it as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, but I I think the the magic system that you've got being so sort of deeply uh, intertwined with the history is partly what makes the world feel so real and tactile and believable because not only does the system that you're using fit the setting like it's it's born from it it's it's fully integrated with it so it just it all sort of fits together so seamlessly when you're reading it you you, you don't question it i don't know like uh, you know, you, you, you'll read, like, fantasy books and, you know, partway through you'll be thinking, like, why the fuck are they doing this? Like, why is this part of the magic system? Like, it either doesn't make sense or it's just a little bit weird. Yeah. But I don't know, at no point in the books, you know, you're suspending your disbelief, of course, but it's really easy to believe in the world that you've created, um, you know, when you're sort of in the book, sandwiched between the two covers. It just, it works really, really well. Yeah, because what you're trying to do with, with the magic, everything um, emerges out of human culture, right? Mm. This is how we see the world. And and this might be why when you think about, say, let, let's move to science, which is the other end of the spectrum, right? Um, the reason why historically there have been these clashes between science and sort of like politics or religion is it has to... Anything that challenges the culture or the status quo is something that's dangerous, right? Um, the, the, this is why I love Hume as well, because Hume as a philosopher, his um, famous, reason, uh, famous line was, um, reason is a slave to the passions. So he kind of overturned Western philosophy in, with the whole idea that you know, all this logic and, and this reason <laughs> that Western philosophy really values is pants, pretty much. <laughs> because, to quote him yeah. verbatim, it was pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's exactly how you say it. Because um, it's, it's our emotions, it's our passions that govern us. And then the logic emerges. We kind of rationalize things um, after the fact. So a magic system kind of has to emerge from the society and and within the book we know Ropa's grandma um, mm. is from Zimbabwe and she practices a different form of magic so I wanted magic to be a kind of proxy to people's worldviews and how they see how we all organize the world we we're in this we all thrust in this universe that we don't understand and we're thinking what the hell is going on we here? didn't ask for this we, no none of us asked for this but we're here now and we're trying to make sense of it and there's different ways that you can um make sense of the world and and, and this is why i i particularly have um a resistance to people that say you know science is the be all and end all mm. um Science is neutral, right? 
supposed to be. But <laughs> it's supposed to be. Um, but our interpretations of it. So I, I've used the example before that you know, splitting an atom is neutral, but whether or not you should split it over a populated city is an ethical, moral question. It's how we interpret things that matters. Yeah. Um, and therefore, when I was doing the the magic system, I, I decided to call it scientific magic mm. because that's an oxymoron, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and th there's great debates. Um, in, in book three that I'm writing, you, you'll find they, they, they spend time splitting hairs as to whether it should be scientific magic or magical science. You know, and, and, and they spend a lot of time and, and energy on, on, on this. Uh, I'm fascinated by sort of like the old theological discussions about things like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, and, and the magicians are sort of like that. But giving them this, this um, connection to the city's history and the culture, it also enables you to, to draw in um, other elements of... of you know scottish history that belong to roughly the same period like we know one of the magic schools that the glasgow school is called the lord kelvin institute and lord kelvin if you think about um you know your temperature scale right that's why this is we're going back to gcse um, <laughs> science right your, your your temperature scale that's that's like the kelvin you can bring in people like james clark Mm -hmm. Maxwell and all those figures, you can kind of nod to them and, and say, okay, so there was magic happening alongside these developments and how mm -hmm. the magicians have interpreted these um, scientific changes. In the t does this make any sense at all? Yeah, no, it does. I, I'm just, I, I mean, it, like, I'm sort of thinking because you've got, you know, um, Obviously, at one point, everything was ruled by the Bible and by the Christian version of, of, of what was true and what was possible. And then you sort of have the, the rise of sort of this critical thinking in terms of, of, of science, at which point a lot of things were banished because they were sort of or, or, or you know, sort of disproven because they were simply found not to be true. But it's almost like you're taking a little bit of a but what if some of it was true? You know, mm -hmm. some of these sort of mystical beliefs, some of the less explainable stuff, but then, you know, people wanted to do with, with it what they often do with science is, you know, they want to understand it, they want to know how it works, but they also want to try and package it up into a box in which it can be palatable to many and also probably sold in. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really interesting because I think you really hit the nail on the head of what we sort of, as a species, in in the UK anyway, um, probably would have done had we found some of these sort of magical things to have held true under, you know, scientific scrutiny and gone, well, okay, well now we need to sort of reevaluate what that means with, you know, with that in mind. But 
it's it, it's still going to end up you know being looked at in that similar way of like taking it into a laboratory you know like a laboratory and and seeing you know how many times can we poke it and what things can we poke it with and what color is it going to turn and like you know doing it in, in all those different ways so i think again that's one of the reasons why as a magic system it feels so legitimate it's because you can totally believe people doing that and and it developing in that way as well um and, and like you said as well it is obviously so dependent on people personally as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the attempt that's what i was trying to do and what emerges later on though is is this idea that um you know scientific magic so it happens to be one theorization of, of mm, mm-hmm. magic. So you, you have Dr. Maige, who's the head librarian at the Library of the Dead. He comes from a pure mathematics background. Yeah. And he posits uh, the belief, this is in book two, mm. that, um, you know, he draws something out of the mathematical universe hypothesis that <laughs> it, it, it's this wacky idea I, sh- I really shouldn't say wacky in case there's like serious mathematicians <laughs> listening to this morbid podcast but it, it is the idea that somehow the universe is a manifestation of mathematics right that's kind of yeah. why we discover mathematics um and his whole thing is magic itself um is mathematical in mm. nature um that's his take on it um there are other sort of like i think they term them in book two if and i might be wrong here it's been a while (laughs) since i've read my own work epistemological magic which we encounter in book three that's due out in july we plug there (laughs) (laughs) um and that's called the mystery at dunvegan castle where we have these magicians that come through from ethiopia Mm. And they have a religion-based magic. They're tied into the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is one of the oldest sort of like Christian um, organizations that still survives. And their magic is tied to the religion. And it still works. Mm. Um, And the reason I did that was this idea that I don't know if, if, if this has ever happened to you, Jasper. Um, I was born and raised Catholic in a conservative Catholic family. Mm. And w- when you're raised in, 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 in that setup, the world shapes itself to your beliefs. It, it's, mm. it's a weird thing about mm-hmm. the universe. And then when I moved outside of that, yeah, it's, it's kind of jarring. Uh, I'm now um, an atheist, uh, not the Dawkins type, you know, I will convert you to atheism. This is why we're friends. (laughs) If you were the Dawkins type, we wouldn't be friends. (laughs) So I'm a cuddly atheist. (laughs) You've got to put that on your Twitter bio. (laughs) A cuddly atheist. (laughs) And again, a similar thing happens. Like, I I don't believe in that anymore. And the universe somehow reshapes itself to Mm. this new belief. And yeah and i think i mean self-discovery is so important and i think it's important in the book in terms of the way that people use magic and their relationship to magic because you know despite there being like eight billion of us on the planet not one of us can experience life in the exact same way that anyone else can 
which is a really fucking big and bizarre thing to get your head around, which is, you know, why I don't really think about it most of the time. Um, but we all experience and feel things, you know, on a sliding scale, but slightly differently um, to each other. And I think that really comes into belief as well. And there's something really powerful in learning and finding things out for ourselves. And when you're raised in a certain belief system and you're really told not to question it, you mm-hmm. know, because maybe there's consequences, you know, like, because you'll, you'll be a bad person or you'll go to hell or maybe it's a, a very real risk of alienating yourself from your family, you know, like the the sort of backlash to, to those sort of self-discoveries runs a, a wide gamut depending on your, you know, your personal um, situation. But... I, and, and I know a lot of people who um, did grow up in a sort of Catholic background, whether it's as strict as yourself or whether it's just the country they were in was generally Catholic and maybe their family weren't, you know, specifically practicing, but they were sort of affected by it, you know, mm-hmm. um, regardless. Um, there's a, a drag queen who has a, a book called Unicorn, I believe, um, I'll need to remember their name, but they grew up in um, a country which was sort of very um, hardcore sort of Muslim beliefs. And, and this person really internalized sort of this almost point system of if I do this thing, it's a bad point, but maybe I can level it out by doing a good thing. And, you know, if you're doing that from a young age, that has a really big impact on you. Mm-hmm. Um but that kind of self-discovery that you get to have when you grow up can be an, an amazing thing as well. I mean, for me, I grew up in a very non-religious household when I was very young and then um, sort of got involved with some stuff as a teenager, which then I sort of ended up in what was a very strict sort of belief system, which I've done a lot of work to sort of exit out of but it it changes everything when you really believe that certain things cannot change and i think that's the wonderful one of the wonderful things about science is that like you said it should be unbiased and it should always be searching to prove itself wrong yeah you know it's never the end goal it's it's never met its final form it's always seeking to evolve and to change and to progress which a lot of other things that you can believe in are not seeking to do (laughs) and and these things order the world that we live in in ridiculous ways jasper you are in the death business well Mm. no you're not a hitman (laughs) (laughs) i'd be a terrible hitman oh my god (laughs) you'd shoot someone and say i'd be apologizing exactly Did that hurt? They'd be screaming, I'd be screaming, it'd be a whole mess. Please leave me a five-star review on TripAdvisor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think you can imagine this sort of like weird scenario. We've been talking about old Carlton burial ground. The fact that Mm. you couldn't be buried next to the other people in your community just because you didn't happen to accept Mm. their belief in a bearded guy somewhere in the sky looking down making these rules about um this world that you live in Mm. um and and so i guess with the magic system and this is one of the reason um rope our protagonist is kind of 
excluded from and, and there's a very deliberate reason why I called the, the uh, grouping of magicians the society of skeptical inquirers and she always refers to it as the society mm. the reason she's um, excluded from it and it, because it, it's something that we do right to people that don't hold our beliefs and and again coming from sort of like a religious upbringing there was definitely a them and us thing mm. and it sticks with you for life and and you start making these random decisions later on even after you've exited like i can never watch a celtic and rangers game and not support celtic because they're team catholic <laughs> 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 right, so so you're scarred for life by it, but there's absolutely no reason. No, um, no. I should feel that way inclined. Um, I, I I like what you said earlier that you know it it, it shapes you early on. Uh, there's a Jesuit saying, "Give me," he said, "Give me the boy, and I'll show you the man." Something like that, mm. you know. Um, mm. But Ropine is is in this world that has these beliefs. Um, and because she's from a very poor background, she's really trying to get in with the society because what we ultimately are thinking about with these things is power relations. Mm. Who gets power and who doesn't. And she quickly realizes like, I'm living in this trailer park in this virtual slum outside of the city. She's a young, poor black woman, yeah. who, the granddaughter of an immigrant. And, uh, you know, I feel like you do feel that hanging over in, in some ways, some parts of the book, especially where the society are involved. You know, it's never specifically stated really her kind of thing is where she's living and, and, and you know, the, the situation that she's living in, in terms of she always wants to provide more for her family. So that's where her brain is at. Mm -hmm. But I think you do feel those other factors as well. Um, especially because you know a lot of the guys that you're talking about as in the book people like Hume and, and, and Smith they're, they're old white guys you know yeah. it's the same story yeah. <laughs> precisely and, and, and so she is thinking if I can move into this other thing I'll forget my grandma's kitchen table magic mm. and go legit with this because this is where there's the, so many the points in the book where you want to be like it's not just like listen to your grandma she's got so much to teach you please <laughs> but she does that classic stupid thing that you do when you're young where it's like yeah they're just old people what do they know you know what do they know <laughs> they're fossils but there's this new shiny thing that if i can only get into that thing um i was doing a a panel at, at comic-con uh, last weekend with Olivia Blake and we were talking about dark academia mm. like the the whole genre which you know this series falls into mm. um, and as we were having that conversation we also kind of linked it to wealth and power and sort of like the developments that are there now you know if, if, if you look at the constant um, for lack of a better term culture wars and stuff that yeah you know are always tied into these old institutions and i think that's what it boils down to ultimately um because whenever you have sort of like a fantasy book or, or stuff about um you know magic and stuff you end up getting uh, a character that's like the one right that can wield <laughs> this magic and the prophecy save the world. child yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I was trying to go a little bit outside of that and, and say, yeah, but there's, there's, 
you know, most people aren't even plugged into that. And even the, the idea that they sell about that is, is, it's such a seductive idea. But that's not how most of us live our lives at all. No, it's such a... I, like, I don't really know how we got to that storyline. I, I mean, it's old. It, you know, it goes right back to like the hero's journey. Yep. Where y- you have a, a demigod child who is half divine and, you know, so certain things are expected of them and, and they, you know, like they have a specific role to play. Um, I, I don't know, it's quite like a, this is, this is your place in society kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I've never really thought about it like that before, but it really does tap into the like, you owe this to society or this is what you have to do because this is what we say you have to do and of course um rainbow rowell's um carry on series deals directly with this idea of the one and the chosen one where you have um not to not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it and it it, it, fantastic fantastic but really cute romance in it as well just so sweet and gay it's pride month go read it um (laughs) but yeah it it deals directly with this idea of the one Mm -hmm. and what if you've been told you're the one your whole life but you're not and what if there is no one how do you deal with that fallout then and how does everyone else deal with that fallout because the thing is if all of the responsibility is shouldered onto one person, no one else has to worry about it. Yeah. No one else has to go, oh, is is, is what I'm doing and thinking and saying um, making a difference? Well, it doesn't matter because it's not on me to fix or change the problem. So it, yeah. it really changes the responsibility element as well. Yeah, and, and I find it deeply solipsistic, mm. right? In, in that it reduces everyone else around you into some kind of like non-playable characters they're lackeys they're yeah, yeah. they only are there to serve the one on their journey on their quest and you know th- those texts are so seductive because this is how we view the world right i can only view the world through the camera lens of tendai Huchu. we're all the main character in our own lives you know yeah and we can't help that but but you really (laughs) haven't grown (laughs) it's not true but you really haven't grown up or you're not a fully formed human being if you maintain that Mm. belief or you have to at least have the realization that each encounter that you have is an encounter with the one who is the hero of their own story and yeah if we all have that um, understanding that we have this delusional default setting that's kind of built in because we don't have this telepathic web connecting us. Yeah. Um, I think it can only compel us into being more empathetic um, yeah. human beings. If, if you see the, if you think about the world that we live in uh, politically and stuff, there, there is a lot of trampling over other people simply because, well, you, they're disposable. You deserve it, you know, because you're you and you're the main character. You deserve to have that thing regardless of what happens to yeah. other people. Obviously, you can't take responsibility for literally everything all the time. Because True. <laughs> you'd, you'd never move, you know, you'd be stuck with, um, with, with the weight of it, um, which is 
I mean, I've kind of experienced in in some ways as well. But what I was what I was going to say is that's the wonder of books. That is the beauty of fiction, is that it's the only time, the only way, really, whether you're reading a biography, whether you're reading a fiction, that you can climb inside someone else's head and get to run around as them as the main character for a bit and i think that breeds empathy as well which is why reading for kids is so fucking important because i think true empathy and true empathy is not always understanding but true empathy is or or can be you know simply appreciating that someone is different from yourself and that the things that are important to them are as important as the things that are important to me you know yeah and there's no hierarchy of it either but i think reading is is one of the easiest ways that you can breed empathy in yourself and people around you as well and and it's so important and it does it because of you know the interiority that you get in books that you can't really have in film or yeah. the stage or any other media um, I think that's why books persist despite the fact that there's all these other shiny high-techy things mm. going on because when you sit there alone with a book you are entering into someone else's word someone else's world someone else's thought patterns um, their use of language because you know our whole experience is, is is at least interpreted through the lens of, of, of language, at least a huge chunk of it. Mm. Um, but that's one of the reasons that, you know, reading, you know, I became a reader. You, I'm a writer now, um, <laughs> but I still consider myself as mainly being a reader because of that particular effect that you get that you can't get it anywhere else. Um, and when you sit there and you go through this, um, one of the things is it not only teaches you something about other people in the world, but it teaches you something about yourself. So I have this formulation in which I say, we're all unique, all eight point something billion of us. Mm. But because of that, we're pretty much the same. Right? It's, it's a, a conundrum and it's ridiculous because it, it's true but it's also feels just mad yeah <laughs> that, that you go so far around that you come right back to where you started exactly and and, and the universe is is at least in, with my take of it is we have these duality the these opposing forces that kind of end up being pretty much the same mm-hmm. thing um that, that's almost built into the nature of the universe for me and and some of the most profound psychic suffering that that i've seen people go through is because of the deluded belief that they are unique mm. their pain and suffering is you know I'll, I'll give you a good example which is grief if you've ever experienced grief um it's the worst thing imaginable right but as you're going through it you think oh why is this happening to me this this could only ever happen to me but you also have to have the realization that there are people there that have thought the exact same thing and lost 
someone that was so close and dear to them and it's so fucked up and it's so unfair when it happens to you um i've said this before before i lost my mum i would go through you know the motions someone loses someone and you know you're like my condolences and i thought i really got it mm. you know and and you've read books about it texts about it and stuff and you think you're an empathetic person but when it finally happens to you you're like oh shit i get it now yeah but that's also a quality that um books give us so if 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 you ever feel like you know you are this person this hero <laughs> and things happen to you books kind of dissuade you from that because you will always encounter these ideas that you think are unique and singular because you're the hero and then you realize there's a whole bunch of other people that are experiencing them and so you become part of of this community i i i, I don't want to feel sort of wishy-washy but it it feels to me like there's a certain energy that moves through the world that we are all kind of part of and you then become connected and and this is why i love meeting other readers particularly when you have this reference point of a common text and you're like yeah we all sat there Mm. and we got it because of this one particular person that wrote this book we're here now and we're talking about this experience we when when we first met when when your first book came out and and we chatted and um we were recommending books to each other and i remember one of those was the um the winner of the international the international booker prize that year at night all blood is black and i feel like that was one of those books between us because it's a it's the the thing is you can climb inside the head of a character but if you're reading a book that is truly well written you will experience it emotionally and deeply and in your body in ways that the only other people who fully understand that is other people who've read it yeah and it's like i can say all this and i can put it into words and logic but also sitting here next to you and knowing that we've both read it and experienced it mm-hmm. forms a bond and a connection because that book in particular you might not know what's going on at certain parts of it but you feel it you know like yeah. you it it it's it's visceral in in a way that kind of even transcends the words that it's written in somehow it's a phenomenal book it's a really short book I can't recommend it enough. If you want to join our little group of knowing <laughs> what that feels like then read it but it kind of links into um what I was thinking about what you were saying about trauma um is we live in our heads so much of the time mm-hmm. you know like we live up here in our in our brains and we feel sort of like that's where everything comes from but then I think sometimes we can forget that our brains are entirely interconnected with our bodies mm-hmm. and the ways that we that we feel things you know we have our nervous system sympathetic nervous system our parasympathetic nervous system which works sort of without our consent and you know has our fight or flight and all that kind of stuff yeah. and so i think well sometimes like thinking too hard about these things <laughs> and yeah. and trying to think how thinking how you can sort of connect with people or how you can do that thing where sometimes the really healing thing is just to spend time with like how you feel about it and being really honest with yourself and questioning yourself about it because I know from my own experience trauma can live fully inside 
the body in ways that your brain doesn't understand as well. And I think, again, books can sort of get under the skin of that too by showing you that you're not alone in those feelings. Because mm -hmm. you have maybe authors who are speaking from experience or characters who are experiencing something similar and in the way that it's described and sometimes just the things that they go through, you go, oh, I'm not alone. Like, I know this person feels, you know, similarly and would understand that experience that I've had that maybe I can't put into words, but this person has. That's so beautifully, <laughs> beautifully put. Because it, it sounds to me like what you're talking about is this um, Cartesian duality, right? Mm. That a lot of, I think, the errors in Western thinking are founded upon the idea that you have the angel and the beast. Mm. And this um, privileging of intellectual thought. Um, and it is so seductive because, again, your understanding of these, the experience of the world is filtered through, again, through language, which is in itself a very incomplete way of... Oh, it's the most frustrating thing sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But then you privilege that, which is like a small element of your entire being. Think about your brain is like what is it even a, a kilogram or something like that it's just i don't know but it's yeah. a squishy little thing that um wouldn't even be able to hold its own shape where outside of your skull you know there we go. <laughs> beautifully put and 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 so you privilege whatever is going on there outside of of everything else um and i've said before to, to friends that we're not here in this universe or in this world that, that we have found ourselves in to understand it. We're here to experience it. And experiencing thing, things is a product of our five senses, five senses of our embodied beingness. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was reading an article some time ago about uh, these um, scientists that were doing horrific things to animals because well they're kind of sleepwalking they don't feel like us because they don't think like us they don't use language <laughs> therefore they can't even feel pain and they would do these horrific horrific experiments because animals are just machines i, I think that's also down to um descartes as well that, yeah that, that, I, I i mean it's bizarre if you ask anyone who works in the veterinary industry if animals feel pain yeah. they would probably slap you for considering that they don't you know it, it, it's so <laughs> stupid right but when you move into this intellectual world of abstractions you cut off what, the feeling yeah you, know? you, you don't need to feel anything logic is important and and this is again i'll, I'll, I'll try to bring us back to Hume, where he kind of <laughs> sent and Hume is problematic let's say mm. that but then what 18th century white guy it's not yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know he's a product of his time and 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 place but we really can't throw out that insight that he has that says you know we've really kind of got to um to um interrogate mm. our feelings because we kind of rationalize them mm. after the fact and and it feels to me and 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 i might be wrong here that in a way kind of predates the psychoanalysis and, and mm. all the rest of us but there is something that you say to me when we were in the old Carlton burial ground um, 
a few weekends ago mm. uh, and you say trauma is like an embodied experience that mm. you know you sometimes have this cut off between your body screaming out that there is an issue and your mind saying oh grow up you know there, yeah. there's no problem <laughs> yeah. here yeah and making it worse i think um i can i feel like we can kind of bring that split back to roper in a way as well because i feel like she so wants to get in with the society who are really busy being like up in their brains and whatnot and i feel like the stuff that she could learn from her grandma from her gran would sort of bring her back into like herself more because you, you sometimes get the idea that she's sort of pushing so far to be a part of this thing that she wants she's leaving part of herself behind to do it possibly some of the most important parts as well it's one of the reasons i'm really excited to see where she goes because it feels like she's not fully stepped into her own power yet because she's not fully got like where it where it's coming from or where that power actually lives yeah as well and you have like all the stuff to do with her parents as well and like so grief does you know play a big part in her life from sort of that point of view as well and also i think she's grieving you know, she has the run-ins with like um, the the very fancy schools and all these rich people, and she ends up going in these circles that she somehow finds herself in. That you know, arguably, people would say, well, in a class perspective, she doesn't belong there. But in a way, it's like she's grieving the opportunities that she's missed out on from this, and like maybe that's one of the reasons she's fighting so hard because she's like, there's no reason for me not to have these things, and she's so angry that she doesn't just because, you know. Of, of a, a lack of funds and no one reaching out to help. Yeah, so what's happening with Ropa there? And in book three, she encounters the English um, Sorcerer Royale. <laughs> <laughs> Those pesky English. Lord Sashvindu Samarasing. Amazing name. Lord Samarasing is from Birmingham. He's a mm. Brahmin, but he has a really posh accent. <laughs> and he tells her that in order to make it there is a price and she has to lose something of herself and that's the push and pull between Ropa and her grandma yeah um and, and the reason i designed it that way is i was thinking of our roles in in institutions right so i went to this um really wonderful yet simultaneously dreadful high school in Harare called Churchill High School. Yeah. Right, where we worshipped Winston Churchill. I mean, one of the prized artifacts this um, school had in it was this hat and his cane that he donated to, to the school for these Rhodesian kids. Wow. Right. And and part of the process of, of being within that institution is it's a kind of brainwashing into a different culture, a different way of being in order to fit. So, you know, you prioritize English and mm. you you really get what they shoved down our throats was this archaic Victorian idea of what it was to be an English general. It, it is so bizarre, right? But it's, and it's even weirder when you consider at the same time the people who would have been growing up in the UK yeah. would not have probably had that sort of idealized British gentry. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. And, and you come out of that completely fucked up. I've got these friends that I went to school with and we're all uh, dudes in our 40s and we're all somehow messed up by that. We still have this bond because of this 
all boys school that we went to that we're still into and you know you, you've got these old guys reliving their glory days the colonial you, good old boys club yeah. <laughs> <laughs> particularly the ones that peaked in school that played first in <laughs> rugby and stuff <laughs> yeah i've known a few of those i'm very glad i didn't peak in school <laughs> it, it is dreadful um so you know again the this stuff is is embedded within you so one of the reasons why i wanted dropper to go through this process is um when i have an analysis of the world that we live in and people that reach certain positions and what they give up i remember when obama got elected and it was like hooray you know mm. first black president whatever but i was there i was sitting there thinking but this is still an american president and <laughs> his term really demonstrated it right because he was like doing these extrajudicial killings and stuff mm. still got a nobel peace prize despite all that um and and so you've also got another interesting figure who is um Dr. Maige who's very very conservative mm. um you know he's of Tanzanian origin he's the head of the library but he's a man of this institution and he's all about the rules and the order and and so i guess what i was trying to do there was to say um especially in this age that we live in um when i think now about the current composition of our tory government <laughs> that there is this insidious way in which um your identity is subsumed by these institutions and and mm. that's that's kind of one thing uh because well, they, they all went to eton and then they all went to oxford and then you know you have to be a part of that in order to then succeed within those spheres so you literally are subsumed yeah into these places and and because of the the, the class based structure here yeah, we genuflect before them and they're mm. magnificent accents right and consistently vote against our own interests by putting them back in power it it's so insidious and i guess it it brings us back to that point that we had about religion and the one mm. um, because mm. you are taught who you bow before that you are this insignificant little things and mm. they are these figures we are the non-playable characters in a sense um and there these figures above us democracy who <laughs> <laughs> but one one of the reasons that i love roper so much is she so much of the time feels like an antidote to it she's chaos you know like whether or not she tries to be um because sometimes she puts on you know her best face and her best clothes and she tries really hard bless her but she is just chaos in the best way stuff happens around her she stumbles onto things she doesn't really care who you are she'll back mouth you unless you're paying her <laughs> you know she's smart <laughs> she's very smart um but she's she feels so fresh in those circles and 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 with those people you know she's there and she's going why mm-hmm. you know as much as it's like she sort of wants to be a part of it there's this part of her the whole time it's going but why 
Like, why am I being asked to do this? Why are things this way? Why can't I just walk in there and do that? And sometimes she finds out why, and sometimes there are good reasons, and, you know, she, she hurts herself. Um, but most of the time, it just, you know, unveils more sort of conspiracies and things that they're trying to keep secret. And, um, yeah, she's just... She actions things, <laughs> whether people want her to or not. <laughs> And, and that's the thing about drawing a character is contradiction for me is a very important uh, human aspect mm. and what always draws Rupa back is despite you know her bravado and the persona that she sometimes wears she is still an empathetic human being oh yeah and when things finally boil down to what matters at the end of the day um, and, and this comes back to this thing about intellectual intellectualism that we're talking about i think what counts at the end of the day when we are all dead and buried and dust is how we made other people feel and our mm -hmm. relations to them as opposed to these um i think ernest becker would call them infinity projects that um infinity eternity projects that that we create in in, in a way of trying to um, immortalize ourselves we we are all here mm. briefly where these brief sparks between two ends of infinite darkness and how we relate to to other people i i think is by far i'm, I'm far from perfect it's it's a journey of of constant self-improvement and mm. failure mm. in it but i think when you're at the stage where you're like yeah i'm a little bit fucked up but I have a lot of work to do and it's a constant journey towards it's 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 not an end destination it's it's, it's constant work and i think ropa bit by bit and we'll see this more in in book three where she um discovers that this thing she's in is so hopelessly mm. corrupt and these people around her that she she looks up to and that she wants to be a part of so messed up which is our old etonians that now i think in the final analysis post brexit post COVID, and it, it's manifested there in front of us and the question is what do we do now mm. uh, and that's an issue that ropa is having within this world of weird wonderful adventures that she's navigating i'm i'm so excited to read the third installment as well because i know we get to go outside of edinburgh a little bit we've been talking um for a wee while and I, to be honest we could absolutely talk all afternoon <laughs> about this stuff but i know we've got to stop it at, at, at some point but um before before you go before you leave us um i gotta ask what are you reading at the moment what what would be your recommend right now Oh my god, so there's this fantastic fantasy author, Sahara El Arifi, um, who wrote The Final Strife, that's, um, yes. and now she's on to her second book, The Battle Drum, and I have the privilege of interviewing her toppings on, on Monday about it, mm -hmm. uh, and it is, she, she is a phenomenal writer, writes beautifully, um, and for a fantasy series, her pacing is slow and very deliberate, but you're in safe hands. Mm. And she's crafted this non-Western fantasy 
drained from her Ethiopian and Ghanaian heritage, but the, you know she touches the Middle East. She touches. She takes something from all these um, world cultures, and you have a fantastic. It, it's it's a multi. You know, it's a multi-character cast that she has with different um, with different POVs, yeah. and it's it's so beautifully spun how the stories come together and you have these um, characters that are in a messed up world that they're trying to fit into and fix at the same time it, it's that's not relatable at all <laughs> <laughs> not at all Jasper um, so the battle drum, the battle um, drum. Is, you know one thing I've, I've been finding lately the more reading I've, I've been doing is SFF really speaks to and about the world that we are living in mm. today and and I feel it more viscerally than the realistic novel which is mm. what I you know I started out in. Yeah. and and so there is an author that you want to watch oh brilliant right go and read that go and pre-order the second book <laughs> as well um, and obviously the the third book in the series is coming out do you in know july in the uk and august in the states amazing do we have a date for it in july oh god i can't even remember the exact that's fine date. I'll, I'll look it up <laughs> i'll put it in the outro um and whereabouts can people find you you can find me on social media twitter or instagram at tendai huchu my full name i'm not cool enough to be on tiktok yet i i, I think i <laughs> peaked when i started instagram a few years ago so <laughs> that's fine <laughs> just means i can't tag you but it's fine um although our definitions will be on instagram soon so then i can i can tag you and things then Great. and then an easy way for for people to find you as well but thank you so much for being here today chatting with me um and if you've enjoyed our chat then you have to go and pick up a copy of library of the dead um and get started with it or you know the new one if you've already read the first two um and thank you very much for listening bye 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 <laughs>so there you have it that is the end of part two and unfortunately of my super interesting chat um with tendai um like he was saying the third installment in the edinburgh night series will be out on the 27th of july the mystery at dunvegan castle so it's taking us outside of edinburgh a little bit and we get to see um, more of Scotland um, and more of this world that Tendai has created. Like I said last week, try, if you can, to champion your independent bookshops um, when you're buying or even your local libraries or if you love the sound of it, pre-order it. Pre-ordering is honestly one of the best things that you can do to support your favourite authors um, by boosting their sales. If you are also a lover of the dark, the strange, and possibly of cursed literature, join me over on TikTok at Definitions, where I also chronicle and recommend all of my favourite morbid books. If you have any thoughts to share about the podcast or your own impending mortality, drop them in the comments, um, or 
Like I said, you can come find me on TikTok, have a conversation with me there. I have some Patreon-esque things in the work and I would absolutely love to know if some extra monthly content and maybe some other goodies um, would be of interest to you. Reviews and ratings go a long way in helping to get this podcast out there and I greatly appreciate the support. I want to tell you guys about all this weird stuff as much as you want to hear about it. The more you let me know you're out there listening, the more I'm inspired to delve into the depths of the internet and my local library to bring you these twisted tales. And not only that, but I have some more super exciting, really, really interesting authors who I will be chatting to. um, And those will be coming up in the next couple of months alongside our uh, regularly scheduled um, death content. The Definitions podcast is research written and read by me, Jasper Chanter, with music provided by Zapsplat. Anyway, chop chop, break's over, pick that shovel up, that grave's not going to dig itself. Bye bye for now, listeners. Catch you on the other side.